This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Action and Ambition, the show that takes you all over the world to share interviews with the most successful and relevant people on the planet. Hear their backstory, get the most important lessons they've learned on their road to success, and hear exclusive tips on how to implement their success in your own life. Action and Ambition is brought to you by Entrepreneur Magazine and your host, Andrew Metal. Thank you for tuning in to the Action Ambition Podcast. I am Philip Lanos, and today we are joined by Sarah Choi. Now, she is a partner at Wing, where she invests in companies at the intersection of bio and data. Now, Sarah enjoys working with early stage founders. Two of her investments are in stealth mode, and bringing her background into data to healthcare and the life sciences is exactly where she wants to be. Without further ado, Sarah Choi. Sarah, how are you doing? Hey, doing really well. How are you? Doing good. You know what? You've got great audio. It's not something that happens all the time, believe it or not, in the age of Zoom. So I'm thankful for that. Now, <laughs> I have to ask, did you always intend to be in venture capital or did you happen to fall into it? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, I did not. In fact, <laughs> I think if you were to ask you know, five, 10-year-old Sarah about venture capital, I would say, what in the world is that? Because where I grew up in a relatively small town in Northern California, my dad was a mailman, my mom worked in school. I didn't know what venture capital was. Hell, I didn't know what investment banking was or consulting, all these different careers that my friends end up going down the path of. So I can't sit here and say that this was some big aspiration of mine, but it's certainly a profession that I feel very lucky to have stumbled into. Yeah, I, I don't know many kids who dream of having lots of money unless it's to buy candy, right? So I get it. I get it. So what, what did you first pursue since it wasn't originally where you intended to go? I have here healthcare background in biosciences. So there's got to be something there, right? Yeah, very much so. I mean, back when I was a kid, the person who made a really big impact on my life was actually my doctor. And when I went to school, I think naturally I gravitated towards a career profession that I felt like could do some good in the world. And so I did actually start down that path of biology and trying out pre-med, but very quickly I realized, oh my goodness, there's such a big world out there. So many different career paths that people can take. And so I actually ended up dropping out of school for a bit of time, although my parents will have a heart attack if, this, if they hear this. So let me prep it. I, I did end up going back and I eventually graduated, but I did end up taking some time off from school just to figure out who the heck am I and then what a good career path might look like for me. I respect that, actually. I think I think taking that break was probably the smartest thing anyone can do in general. So and it proved to pay off for you because during that break, I imagine something happened that you finally were able to make a decision with clarity and confidence. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, Philip, I think um, I think it's accurate and it's also never too late. Like heck, I've taken many breaks in my career and my life. <laughs> I just think it's so important to have that time to reflect if you can. And of course, not not everyone can. You have obligations, of course. Um, so I feel super fortunate that I was able to do that. But yeah, I did have a few moments of clarity. I think the first was, I mean, look, during that time, I just tried lots of different jobs, tried what it might feel like to be a lawyer's assistant, um, what it might feel like to work at the United Nations, which I did. Wow. Yeah. What it might feel like to do all these different things. And I was trying on all these different hats. And I think I realized a few things. One, um, your job can be just a job. And I found many people who were quite frankly, um, not satisfied in their career professions. And some of them were, were quite miserable. So I had a revelation there, which is your job can be just a job and it can really bring you down and make you a sad person, or it can invigorate you. And I found many other people where they genuinely woke up, for example, in the UN, they genuinely woke up and thought, I'm doing some good for the world, or I have a mission here, I have a purpose. I'm going to be the best manager for my people. And when I saw that, I thought, wow, I, that's what I want. I don't want, quote unquote, just a job. I want a job that lights my soul on fire. <laughs> and so that sounds a bit vague, but I mean, really, that's my biggest takeaway from that time, which is that's possible. And some people have found it. And I wanted that. And it, it looks like you may have found that. I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Because you can do something and feel entirely drained. And then you could go have another career where it's even harder, the work totally. you have to do, but you leave like, yeah, <laughs> like there's not enough hours in the day for this, right? Is And is that how you feel these days with uh, the cross-section, right? The intersection of bio and data and, I mean, to add to it, venture capital, right? And creating that space for it. Because let's take, for example, the fact that you're in the bio and data and look at what happened recently in the world with the global pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. um, if we were to investigate that and, and, and see not only like, could this have been prevented? Probably so based on information that we have from the past, etc. cetera. Uh, but now look at where we are and the numbers are getting better, but it's not there. I imagine there may have been companies that came your way with, we can probably prevent this or Lord only knows, right? So what are your thoughts specifically given your expertise, right? You have a background in all this on COVID, where it might be going and how businesses might be able to stand to make the world better because of it with opportunities or solutions that they create? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's an excellent question and so timely. This past year has been such a, such a strange time, horrible in some ways, but where I sit, there's also been a lot of in innovation and people who have truly had that fire lit and want to do good for the world. And so that's why I get particularly jazzed by this intersection of data and biology. If you think about even the vaccine, right? Both of us probably have had an mRNA vaccine. And thanks to that, our worlds can go a bit back to normal. I mean, just peeling that onion back, what, what is going on in that vaccine? Well, it's actually biological engineering. It's the cross-section of two disciplines that enable that to happen. And quite frankly, this would not have been possible before because for centuries, science was um, test tubes. It was sequential experimentation. 
it was slow and steady progress, but really it was engineering, you know, sophisticated math and computation that unlocked the step change, where now we just don't have to be relegated to the world of test tubes, but now we can do high throughput experimentation, do many, many, many machine driven experiments at a time, and then apply computation to that robust data at the other end of it in order to create things that really advance humanity forward. And I think we saw this with the vaccine. Now, in terms of where we are now and where we still need to go, the vaccine and uh, antibodies have gotten us to a place where in the top 10 killers, it's no longer um, these solvable problems that are our top killers, they're chronic, they're chronic conditions. Oh. So when I say chronic conditions, you know, it's cancers, it's neurological disease, it's metabolic disease, and we still have those left to solve. And, you know, COVID has been an interesting time. And I think I'm, I feel very grateful that we had this vaccine, but we still have so many more problems to go and solve. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So I feel very fortunate to see all this innovation down the pike because I see glimmers of people working on these things and innovations that will transform our future. It's just, you know, these people require capital. They require supporters. They require funding in order to move forward. And that's where I can play a role. I love that because now I'm curious, you know, like what do you think uh, – obviously a lot of people start off with the friends and family. Right. And, uh, but when you're in the field of like biological enhancing and solving, it's kind of hard to come to your friends and family and be like, Hey, this is what we're doing. So you automatically have to sort of look at different kinds of stakeholders and at least approach a seed. Right. So, um, what are some things based on what, what you've seen that sort of, cause there might be someone listening right now who has, I actually interviewed someone a while back who had ideas, but but couldn't find funding because in his mind, he thought he was essentially um, uh, facing an entire industry that was against him solving mm -hmm. this. And this was about the fact that there was like efficacy issues with the vaccine, but we've always been able to solve it. It just happened that, you know, we were trying to make it less likely to have symptoms. And so that held a lot back. And so it was a big can of worms, right? So I don't know the entire story there. I got what I could out of it, but I imagine you see a lot of people who are trying to solve issues like this and may feel, I, I don't know this, right? So this is my assumption that some of them who want to solve these issues may feel that they're going up against other industries and that may be a conflict of interest with raising capital. Now, is that mm -hmm. accurate or, or, or am I wrong here? No, Philip, I think you're exactly right. And you said something that's really important that I want to tease apart which is, you're right, the first place most people go to is the friends and family round. They look left and they look right and they try to accumulate enough capital to get going. But I think the subtext of that that doesn't get talked about enough is, look, this is, in order to be able to do that, you need to be in a pretty privileged position. And if it were just that, only rich people yeah. would continue advancing ideas forward. Because if you look left and you look right and there's no money around, how would you be able to start your idea if that were truly the one and only way to get going? And I view my role and also the role of you know my colleagues as, hey, it should not just be these privileged pockets where the ideas and funding come from, because what a world would that be, right? Yeah. That's, you know, a good idea can come from anyone. So 
that is certainly a, a path. It's tried and true. I don't think it's the only path. It's not the path I took with my companies. There's another way. And the first step in that is, hey, can you just de-risk your business? And that does not actually require capital. It's this intermediate step that oftentimes gets overlooked, which is, can you just figure out, is there is there some proof? Is there some evidence that you can get without having any money in that will de-risk the business? Few ways to do that. You can go and find the world's foremost experts. See if they'll give you some advice. Hell, see if they'll be an advisor to the company. That's one free way that you can start to de-risk your business. Or could you just go to customers, sign them up on a pre-wait list, get some, you know, give them a survey, say out of a hundred people I spoke to, 90% said this. That's another easy way to de-risk your business. And then once you've gotten this proof, and hopefully you've also learned something from the process, then you can go to the funding round. And there, there are many different ways that you can get funding these days. I mean, the easiest and probably the most efficacious is to get a warm intro. And again, if you don't already know those intermediaries, that is okay. You know, you don't need to just be born of this privileged network in order to get far in the world of entrepreneurship. You can do that through advisors. You can do that through seeking out professors seeking out mentors, these intermediary people who can hopefully give you the warm intros to the people who might be best for your business. Uh, and then that's just the last thing before I get off my soapbox. I apologize. <laughs> no, I, I, I I'm loving it. I'm wound up about these things. I'm loving it. I get it. <laughs> um, but just the last piece is when you do go for that funding, make sure that there's a really good fit with your potential funder. And what I mean by that is, look, Another mark against a friends and family round is if you're raising money from, let's say, a friend, and this is the only angel investment that they can do because they don't have a ton of capital, that investment means a lot to them. That's a lot of money, right? Let's say it's $200,000 and they make $200,000. I mean, that's a lot of money. So I would just weigh that very carefully. Could you live with that on your conscience if for some reason the business did not work out, you know, would that be a very awkward, whatever, bar mitzvah or something yeah. down the yeah. road? Like, please weigh that very carefully versus investors. We do this professionally. We have a diversified portfolio. We are weighing in our minds, the risks and the benefits and making a calculated decision about our portfolio of many companies. Therefore, institutional investors, you know, they can be good for that. And then within that, different investors have different specialties. For example, I concentrate at this intersection of data and biology. Therefore, I would probably be the better fit for a founder in health tech or life sciences. Um, and so that's just another thing to diligence, just so you don't end up wasting a lot of time. No, I, I love that because you took steps to break it down as simple as possible for anyone at any level. It's a great reminder for people who are pros and seasoned in the game to be like, yeah, that's, that's exactly how I do these things or to, you know, uh, to compare and contrast. And then for people who have no idea and really want to get into it, be like, okay, that may be a better option. So right. I'm really grateful that you broke that down. And, you know, it would be a missed opportunity if I didn't, uh, if I didn't ask you to sort of speak on the idea of data, because data is sort of a buzzword these days, right? With information and everything. 
And there's a lot of data scientists, et cetera. But often, you know, I used to work at a marketing agency and we'd have data, but then we were tasked with interpreting the data and making some actionable result from it, right? So there's a lot of people who, let's say, have set up their Google tracking and everything else, and they're trying to get, you know, acquisition data or whatever it is, adoption data, predictive data, but then how do they make a story of that? Now, is this something that's in your wheelhouse? Is making a story out of information? Is it to, to consider how you're tracking things and, and planning that that's going to ultimately define that? Or do you track all things and then try to make sense of that? Yeah, I mean, good question. And I think it really depends on what industry you're in. So in this world of biology and data, what's fascinating right now is if you look at the public markets and the companies that have done really well, Illumina, for instance, they do genomic sequencing, $60 billion market cap. These companies that are being valued so highly are at, if I were to imagine a circle, at, at sort of the bottom of the circle. These are basic data collection machines. Their sole purpose is to get more data that's then used in research and applications, etc. But I mean, at their core, they are spinning off new data streams. But what you're talking about is if we have the data, can we then derive some insight from it? And so if I were to think about the circle now moving left, building on top of the data, you've got the applications. And these applications try to derive insights from the actual data that's being generated by the data collection engines. So I would put companies like a Gardent or a Grail into this category. These are companies using the data for a purpose, in this case, early cancer detection, but they have some sort of usable interface that also gets added. So it's not purely about the data stream, it's about being able to use the data stream in a way. Then if I were to continue up this circle, on the far right, once you get past the applications, you have companies that I call agility companies, where, okay, we're getting out of this land of just pure data streams and applications into the land of agility. And these agility focused players, you know, they might not have actually a ton of ML or AI or sophisticated machinery going on, like marketplaces, for instance, those are an example of more of an agility company. But where we are in the market right now is we're at the bottom, we're still pure data plays are getting valued really highly. And then we're moving up the curve over time. And why I put it into a circle like that is because that's what we've seen in every other industry. And that tends to be what happens. But we are still so much in the early innings in life sciences, where even the pure play data plays actually end up being good businesses overall. I love that. Now, and thank you again for breaking that down. It you didn't have to, and it's so generous of you. Now, I want to know more about where your plans are, Sarah, for the rest of 2021, maybe up to 2024, if you've got it planned like that, I don't doubt that you do. <laughs> and, uh, and maybe how that connects to Wang or whatever else you might be doing, just so the listener can actually support your endeavors and your efforts, you know, whether it's connecting with you somewhere, uh, following your newsletter, if you write one, whatever it's going to be. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, my 2020 plans are um, stay sane, <laughs> yeah. stay healthy, you know, focus on family. I think those things probably come first, but also 
continue doing good work on behalf of the founders that we back. You've probably gotten a flavor of this through how I speak. I really believe that it's important to unlock these privileged networks and information. Yeah. And one way to do that is through talking to people directly. So I hold open office hours. Anyone can come and sign up and grab a bit of time to talk with me. And no guarantees I can be helpful, right? That right. goes to what I said before. You know, make sure it's a good fit because I don't want to waste your time either. But if you do want to have a quick conversation, I'm always open to it. I'm going to share my LinkedIn and also my email address. And then um, feel free to reach out to me. My LinkedIn is linkedin.com slash IN slash S-A-R-A-C-H-O-I-09. My email address is simply sarah at wing.vc. I love that. Thank you. That's a direct line for anyone who's heard. And as you can tell, even if she's not in your field, she'll at the very least break down the rudimentary foundational understanding and then encourage you to find somebody who's actually more of a target fit. And that's something I learned from this, you know, that there, I mean, you, you suppose there are people who have specialties, but now you know, for sure, <laughs> you heard it here first. Now, that being said, I do traditionally ask a question on here, Sarah, that I hope you're willing to answer. And, you know, it's a shame because I feel like we just touched the, 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 the tip of iceberg of information that you have at your disposal with the work that you do. So uh, for me, I wish this was a longer conversation. But that being said, this is an opportunity to tie in all kinds of things. I've, I've found that this happens, but there's no pressure. You can pass on this question. And that is if you could have invited anybody to join our conversation, dead or alive, who would it be and why? You know, you asked me what the rest of the year looks like for me. And I just want to go back to last year and a book that made an impact on me. And the book is called The Fourth Turning. And the people that I would want to bring on the podcast would be the authors of it, um, William Strauss and Neil Howe. And I'll just share a bit about why it was so impactful for me because these two guys who are generational historians, they have this theory and they wrote this book actually in the 90s, uh, which is history tends to go in, in cycles, but they broke it down in terms of history tends to go in, at least modern history tends to go in 80 year cycles. And you get four 20 year periods in each of those cycles. And if you look at the fourth period, which is coincidentally the period we're in now, they predicted back in the 90s that there would be devastation, you know, worldwide conflict, um, the world on fire. I mean, they really spoke in almost these prophetic terms, but looking back in the course of history, the last fourth turning periods we've had were World War II, um, Great Depression, um, you know, the First World War, um, even the War for Independence. I mean, history tends to go in cycles. And when I was at my lowest during this insane period of time that we're living in, that gave me a bit of hope, in fact, because after the fourth period, there's always a first period. And that's the period of regeneration and growth. And I do believe that's around the corner. So if anyone's having a bad day, hopefully you can pick up this book and be encouraged because I do believe that the new dawn is right around the corner. 
You know, if th there's so many takeaways from our conversation, just no, number one, it's okay to take a break, even if your family will kill you when they find out, just let them know <laughs> that you succeeded anyways, you know, and you got back on track. Uh, and it's never too late to do that. Uh, also, the fact that you have to find not only perfect market fit, but perfect fit for everything in your business, you know, the team that you want behind you, the, the people you want to invest in you, and, you know, to not take it lightly when you're trying to ask for seeds, uh, a seed round of like, friends and family kind of thing, you know, the pre-seed. Uh, but also it's it's important to realize that there are people like you who are in control of capital, who have a really well-rounded understanding of not only history, but, you know, biology, data, and come from such a diverse background with values that champion opening up that asymmetry of information we all believe deep down inside is the reason why we're not succeeding. But that's not true because there are people like you every day trying to make it more accessible and more possible for ideas to come from places that they don't normally come from to the forefront to get some funding behind them. And for me, that's a huge takeaway and a dose of optimism that I needed in my life. So Sarah, thank you so much for stopping by. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Action and Ambition with your host, Andrew Metal. Please leave a review and subscribe and go to andrewmetal.com for all the exclusive lessons, behind-the-scenes footage, and video content of the show. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube at Action and Ambition, and we'll see you on the next episode. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.